Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's dive into God's word. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your Trinitarian care of us. Uh, that you, Father above, do love us as your own children. And that you, Jesus, have come to save us and to rescue us to our Father in heaven. And Holy Spirit, you indwell us and you shape us and you empower us and carry us to live more and more for your glory. And so we thank you for your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, football season has started again. And as many of you might know, I coach Pop Warner football, Little League football. And one of the highlights of my coaching career, and really just as a person, uh, is coaching two peewee teams inside Lambeau Field at halftime. The first time I did this was back in 2018 with my son Corbin's team. And I still remember the day, uh, you know, we had to, well, leading up to it, it was kind of hurried because we'd have a lot of time. So, so over the course of a week or two, we had to teach the kids how to block, how to tackle, how to throw a football, how to catch a football, what position you are, a few, few plays, things like that. It was, it was about a lot of work. But then we got to the day and the Packers sent two coach buses to the practice field to pick up the players and the coaches. Uh, and so we went over to a parking lot outside of Lambeau, ate lunch, walked up to Lambeau Field, waited in a long line to go through security, uh, finally got into the basement of Lambeau Field uh, where the coaches parked their cars. And they had uh, stands set up, bleachers for the, for the players to sit on. I think you can see it in a picture here. And so if you can imagine 80 kids waiting to play on Lambeau Field, they were buzzing with energy. They were like caged animals. And with every play that went great, they were cheering and rejoicing and slapping hands and things like that. And then finally it got to halftime. And we lined up in the tunnel. I have another picture of that up here. And we're getting ready to go out. Go out of this tunnel where so many legendary Packers had gone before. But I still remember this and it still gives me chills to think about it. Uh, as, as, as the drums were beating in the stadium, boom, 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 boom. And, and the kids start walking and their, their cleats are hitting the concrete. And then their walk goes to a jog, which goes to a run, which goes to screaming, ah! right? And then you get out there and the fans are going crazy because they love Bob Warner football. But it was finally go time. All of the preparation was done. All of the planning was down. Now was the time to play the game. If you remember from last week, Jesus uses three encounters with three different people or groups of people to tell us something important about the kingdom of God. He answers three important questions about the kingdom of God. The first question is, who can enter the kingdom of God? And he tells us that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be like a child, totally and completely dependent upon God for your salvation. 
The second question is, how can we enter the kingdom of God? And what we learned last week is that we don't, uh, we don't, we don't uh, come into the kingdom by our own moral excellence. It's not by what we do, but what Christ has done for us. And the final question we had is, and this is important, when can we enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, yes, that is eternal life. But Jesus also says something that is mind-blowing. He says the kingdom of God is in this time. And so the apostles are amped up. They're in the tunnel, ready to go. They have been preparing for three years through Jesus' ministry to go and establish the kingdom of God. They have gathered thousands and thousands of followers. Jesus has, has shown his divinity through his healings and through, through calming storms and feeding 5,000. But now all the planning is done. All the preparation is over. It is go time. It is time. Time to establish the kingdom of God that the people of God had been waiting for ever since King David. But the question is, how would this kingdom be established? And that's what Jesus tells us in today's passage. If you would, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 32 through 40, 34, just three verses. It's page 846 in the Red Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that as a gift from Jacob's Well Church. So Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. This is God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that as we enter into a text that many of us might be familiar with, God, that we can see it with fresh eyes and receive it with fresh hearts, Lord, that we might glory in your purposes and the establishment of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is now the third time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus predicts his coming passion. During this time, this final time, Jesus is much more specific. He gives greater details about what is about to happen. There are three parts of this passage that I want us to highlight. And as we highlight these parts of the passage, what they are going to tell us is about the plan of God for establishing the kingdom of God. Okay, And so the first thing that we see here is that tells us something about the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish is that Jesus is, is of Jesus' trajectory towards Jerusalem. Look at verse 32 with me. It says, and they were on the road, talking about Jesus and his disciples and the crowds, going up to Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was set up high. It was a city on a hill. It was 3,500 feet above Jericho, which Jesus would stop at before going to Jerusalem. They were going up to Jerusalem. Verse 32 again, and they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that it is noted that Jesus is walking ahead of his disciples. 
When someone is walking ahead of a group of people, what they are doing is they are leading those people to a certain destination, and they are leading a charge to wherever they are going. Jesus is leading the charge here. It continues and says, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Whenever you see repetition in passages in the Bible, it typically means it's, it's something very important. Here in verse 32 and verse 33, we see repeated that they are going up to Jerusalem. It's so important that in verse 33, Jesus says, see, behold, take notice, we're going up to Jerusalem. It so excites the apostles that they are amazed and they are afraid. And the question is why? Like, what is it about going up to Jerusalem that gets them so excited? Well, let me give you an example of how how going up to Jerusalem is kind of this key phrase that would bring things to mind. When I first moved up here from Missouri, people would say to me, we're going up north this weekend. And I would think to myself, like, why are you going further north? I don't get it. Aren't we far enough north? Shouldn't you be going south? I mean, aren't we almost off the end of the earth up here? But, but people say, no, we're going north for the weekend. And I didn't quite know what that meant until I'd been here for a couple months. And what I realized is when people say I'm going up north this weekend, what they say is I'm going on vacation. I'm going camping or I'm going to the lake house or I'm going to the cabin. We're going to go swimming and boating and fishing. We're going to do all these fun things. And so if you are in Green Bay and someone says, I'm going up north this weekend, you know what it means. Where a Missouri boy wouldn't know what that means. Here, when Jesus says we are going up to Jerusalem, it's very significant to these disciples. You see, they understood from the Old Testament that Jerusalem is where the kingdom of God would be established. And it was from Jerusalem that it would spread out over the entire world. And so when Jesus says, look, we are going up to Jerusalem, as he's going up to Jerusalem, it says that they were astonished. They were astonished. Why would they be astonished? Well, you see, all of the preparation is done. Now is the time that, that, that the people of God have been waiting for from King David. The, the kingdom of God is about to happen. You see, people throughout Jesus' ministry continually tried to force him to be the king, and he would slip away because he didn't want to be king. But now at this point in time, Jesus is not avoiding his kingship. He is not avoiding the kingdom of God. He is the one who is leading them into Jerusalem to establish the kingdom of God. And they are astonished that they are a part of this this day in redemptive history. So they're astonished. But not only are they astonished, they're also frightened. They are scared. You see, it'll become very obvious in verse 36 that the disciples think that they are establishing a political kingdom, that they're going to overthrow Rome and establish the political kingdom of Israel. And so they're anticipating that their entrance into Jerusalem to establish the kingdom is going to include some warfare. Uh, And so going in there is scary, just like it would be for anyone who was going into hand-to-hand combat. I'm guessing that they had in mind some of the stories of the Maccabean revolt in which the oppressive uh, government that was over them uh, was desecrating the temple and not allowing them to worship God. And so, and so the people of God revolted against them, uh, had hand-to-hand combat. Many of the Jews died, but ultimately God gave them the victory. And I'm guessing they had that history in mind as they're headed 
headed into Jerusalem, ready to establish the kingdom of God, ready to use their swords and their fists to make it happen. And so this is Jesus' trajectory, his trajectory into Jerusalem, leading the disciples. It's go time. The kingdom is about to be established. And so Jesus' trajectory to Jerusalem. The second thing that we see here is Jesus' tragedy in Jerusalem. Look at verse 32 with me again. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, a phrase used of the coming Christ in the book of Daniel that Jesus applies to himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. This clearly is not what the disciples were anticipating. Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom, but he's not going to do it through military victory, but through personal tragedy. It's almost as if Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to throw his whole ministry away. He's been, opposed, he's been opposing the religious leaders, and now they're going to take him captive. Seems like everything is going away. And yet here Jesus, with great specificity, details how it's all going to go down. First with the Jews. He says this in the passage. He says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes were the leaders of the Jews. They formed what was called the Sanhedrin. It was the governing body for the people of God. Jesus says, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, this may not mean much to us, but Gentiles were considered dirty dogs. You wouldn't even have supper with them. They were so dirty, and yet they were going to turn Jesus over to the Gentiles. Jesus is very specific about this prophecy to his disciples, but the question is, does it come true? Is this how it actually plays out? If you would keep your finger in Mark chapter 10 and flip over to Mark chapter 14, Verse 43, and as we read these verses, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' sandals, okay? Imagine as if you did not know what was coming. I know this is familiar to many of us, but put yourself in their situation where all of this is new to them, okay? So Mark chapter 14, verse 43, and we'll read some and skip some verses. I'll let you know as we go. Mark 14, 43 says, And immediately while Jesus was still speaking, that's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs. They're ready for a fight. They come from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, who's Judas, had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, Judas went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by, it's Peter, we know from other accounts, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. He was ready 
for a battle. He was ready for hand-to-hand combat. Verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus knew that his capture by the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish officials, was the prophecy of God from the Old Testament, and that it must happen to fulfill what God had written. Skip down now to verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. These are people that are often very divided. They came together over their hatred of Jesus. Continue down, verse 61, midway through. It says, and the, again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a very audacious claim for a guy who is bound in handcuffs or however they bind him. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. This all plays out exactly as Jesus prophesies, exactly as Jesus tells the disciples, the religious leaders seize him, bind him, accuse him of blasphemy, and then sentence him to death. But their only problem is they did not have the authority to inflict the death penalty, just as the church does not have that authority today as well. And so they turn him over to Pilate. Look at verse 1 of Mark 15. Mark 15, 1, and then we'll flip back to, to chapter 10 after this. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor in Jerusalem at that time. He was the Gentile that Jesus is talking about. Everything, again, was happening just as Jesus said it would. Now back to Mark chapter 10, verse 33. So saying, Jesus said, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. When we turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew 27, we see this is indeed what happens. Pilate uh, interviews Jesus. He, he examines Jesus, and he determines that Jesus is innocent, but to please the Jews, he decides to have him crucified. And so he hands Jesus over to the soldiers to have him flogged. He is stripped naked and embarrassed. There is a scarlet robe put on him. He has crowns, uh, a crown of thorns put on his head and whacked into his skull. They rip the flesh off his back and, and embarrass him. And then, and then he comes out of that and he has to carry a cross up a hill and he is hanging there naked for all to ridicule and, and cast insults at. As we look at the agony, the agony of Christ went through, we ask the question, why? Like, why, why, couldn't, why couldn't Jesus have just fallen on a sword and, and ended it quickly? Why did it have to be so painful, so agonizing? The reason why Jesus had to suffer so much was because the punishment had to fit the crime. 
the punishment had to fit the crime. Imagine right now while you're here at church, someone is at your house and they are starting the house on fire, on purpose, arson, right? They're burning it down. And, and you get home and you find it and it goes to court and the judge says, I'm going to fine you $50 for the arson. You're say, no, the, the punishment does not fit the crime. This is hundreds of thousands of dollars and you're going to fine him 50 bucks. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. It is unjust. And so the question is, what did Jesus do that was so bad that deserved really the most painful, humiliating death in the history of humanity? Well, as we read throughout the Gospels, what we see is that the horrific crime Jesus committed was not actually committed by Jesus, but it was crimes that you committed and I committed that Christ has taken upon himself. You see, Jesus took the mocking you deserve. Jesus took the spit that you deserve. Jesus took the flogging that you deserve, the condemnation that you deserve, the thorns and the nails and splinters that you deserve. Jesus took the death that you deserve. And more than anything, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath that you deserve. And Jesus did this to open up the kingdom of God and welcome in the people of God. Jesus suffered so greatly because his punishment had to fit your crime. In a commentary on Romans by Donald Barnhouse, he illustrates this point of Christ's substitutionary death by, by, by turning us to Barabbas. I've read this to you before, but I love, I love this commentary. Barabbas was the guy who was in prison. Uh, he was sentenced to death. He'd murdered some people. He, had, he, he was awful. He was kind of the scum of the earth. Okay? And so he's in prison waiting execution, and the crowd cries out for Jesus to be executed in his behalf. And so Barnhouse writes this. He says, and so you could imagine Barabbas sitting in the prison, staring at his hands. Imagine this, if you would. Staring at his hands, which were soon to be pierced by nails, and shuddering at the sound of hammering that might remind him with horror of his own impending crucifixion. Suddenly, he hears the crowd roaring outside, crucify him, crucify him, and he hears what he thinks is his own name. Then a jailer comes to unlock the door of his cell. Barabbas thinks that it's time for his execution, but instead the jailer says, you are free to go. The crowd has called for your release. Jesus of Nazareth will die instead. Stunned by this, Barabbas walks nearer to the center of the scene and sees the man who is to die in his place. The procession begins towards Golgotha. He follows and sees Jesus falling under the weight of the cross, but finally arrives at Calvary. What must have been Barabbas' thoughts? He hears the echoes of the blows from the hammer striking the nails and looks down at his own hands. He had thoughts that this would be his day. He had thought that the nails would tear his flesh. The cross is lifted up and sees the silhouette against the sky. The sun grows dark and he hears voice come to him like thunder saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The centurion passes near him and seeing the look upon his face says, truly, this was the son of God. And now Barabbas, more than before, looks with wonder and amazement at the man who is dying for him. There comes a final cry. It is finished. And a little while later, he sees the soldiers take down the body and put it in the grave. Barabbas goes back to the city and all the little things that he expected to never see again comes before his eyes with freshness. 
And Barabbas says, he took my place. Jesus took my place. They released me, Barabbas, who deserved to die, and they crucified Jesus instead of me. He took my place. He died instead of me. Friends, I have good news for you today. Jesus didn't just die in place of Barabbas. Jesus dies in the place of every Barabbas that trusts in him for their salvation. God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. God has made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Friends, do you believe, do you really believe that Jesus' punishment was for your crime? Do you believe that the perfect plan of God for your salvation was that Christ would be killed at the cross in your place? If you believe this, we can proclaim with, with great joy, he took my place. Jesus took my place. God the Father released me who deserved to die and crucified Jesus instead of me. Jesus took my place. Jesus died instead of me. So just to recap, what have we learned about the kingdom of God well, we learned by Jesus' trajectory towards Jerusalem that this is something that he is leading the charge to do. We learned from the tragedy in Jerusalem that, that he would establish his kingdom, not by killing others, but by others killing him, that he would suffer, he'd be humiliated, and he would die in our place and establish the kingdom in that way. Finally, we have Jesus' triumph outside of Jerusalem. Jesus' prophecy of, of what is to come ends with a very brief glimmer of hope. Look at verse 34 with me. It says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He will rise. I, I know we've heard this before. I know it's tempting to yawn at this good news, but our Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, has risen to never die again. He is alive, he is ruling, he is reigning, he is righteous. The resurrection is the great reversal in human history. At the crucifixion, Satan is laughing, sin is winning, and the disciples are fretting. But then comes the resurrection. And when the resurrection comes, tragedy turns into triumph as our Christ slams Satan's head, defeats death's threat and silences sins, condemnation. Friends, the, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. The apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. We are still destined for hell. But if Christ has risen and is risen and will forever be risen, then we have a king who took the world's greatest tragedy and flipped it into redemption's greatest triumph. But only if the resurrection is true. Friends, we must not forget how good the resurrection is. Pastor John Piper tells the story of, of how during Holy Week, he would go and visit this woman who was in, uh, in assisted living because she had severe dementia and she could remember very little. And he would go and he would simply read to her from the Gospels and, and he'd start by reading about Jesus and she was so enamored with Jesus of how, how gracious and caring and loving and compassionate he was, how he, would, how he would heal the leper, how he would still the storm, how he would feed thousands of people from five loaves and two fishes and she was just on cloud nine at how wonderful this man Jesus was. 
But then Piper would continue to read and he would get to the cross. And when he would read the cross, she would come to this, to this place of absolute despair. She would say, what are they doing? Why are they killing this man? He's such a good man. He's such a wonderful man. Why is he dying? And he would let her sit in that tragedy of, of Calvary for a minute. Could you imagine what it would be like to be the disciples, to be this woman, to think this is the way it ends? There's no hope. Jesus is gone. But then he would get to the resurrection. He would get to the resurrection. He would, he would read of how Jesus came alive. And she would say, could this be true? Is this true? It's, it's too wonderful to be true. Is it true? And he said, it is true. Jesus has risen from the grave. Christian, let not the joy of the resurrection grow dim in your heart. If it is true that Jesus is alive, then he has established his kingdom, the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection, and he is ruling and reigning as king in this very moment. A king who is daily turning people's tragedy of condemnation into the triumph of salvation, filling up the kingdom of God. Let me end with this. Being a pastor, uh, you have many heavy times, okay? There are many times that it's very heavy uh, because you're talking with people who are overcome by addictions that are ruling their life, uh, people who are, who are uh, grieving over the death of a loved one. You, you meet with people who, who feel like their marriage is absolutely hopeless and there is no chance of any healing or restoration of their marriage. And so you're meeting with these people and it's very heavy because you bask in the brokenness, the sin and the heartache that these people are enduring. And so being a pastor can be very heavy, but it's also very happy. Because as your pastor, I have the privilege of witnessing, of, of having front row seats and seeing how our king is at work. I've seen how he turns your tragedy into triumph. I have met with people in a coffee house and heard how God has helped them overcome addictions in their life. I have met with couples who are grieving the loss of a loved one and yet being comforted by the hope of heaven. I, I've met with a man at Jimmy John's and wept uncontrollably as God had restored his marriage to a place that he never thought it could ever be again. You see, our king is in the business of turning tragedy into triumph. It's what our king has done for you in your salvation and continues to do in you in your sanctification. For he is making all things new. Christian, you may not see your king visibly. You don't see Jesus, but you see his work all the time. You have experienced his work. You were a tragedy that he has turned into a triumph by his grace. He is the king that is doing this on a daily basis. This is the kingdom Jesus set up in Jerusalem, turning tragedy into triumph 2,000 years ago. But he's also continuing to do it today in his church and through his church. And he will come again to complete that kingdom where there will be no more tragedy, but only triumph for all eternity. This is the business of our king, turning tragedy into triumph for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful 
that as we face really hard situations right now, we are not hopeless because we have a king who does not give up on us. We have a king that works in the midst of tragedy and triumphs over it to bring restoration and redemption. And we long for the day where there will be no more tragedy at all, only glory. God, help us to rest and hope in you until that time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.